from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. So here's the thing. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now. And our archives are overflowing with amazing conversations with even more amazing people. It's an embarrassment of riches, as we sometimes call it. And what's truly remarkable is that most of these conversations are even more relevant today than they were when they were originally published. We call it evergreen content. It never fades, it never spoils, and it only becomes more valuable the longer we sit with it. Which is why we wanted to make many of these classic evergreen conversations available to you. Every week, we will feature one of these discussions here on our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We will also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world. Today, we've got a classic dialogue between Stuart Davis and Ken Wilber. So classic, in fact, it was the very first dialogue we ever published way back in 2003. Listen as Stuart Davis discusses his music and creative process in intimate detail and offers a beautiful performance of eight of his songs, including an incredibly touching version of Swim, which was based on the death of Ken's wife, Treya Kellum Wilbur. Here's a couple of things I want to talk about, just sort of the broad topics. We've talked about in the past what integral art is. And part of the difficulty about trying to describe integral art is a lot of people try to work from the artwork itself. And so they want to say, if I'm doing a painting, it's integral if spirit is in there. It includes the entire cosmos. And the unseen realms. The entire seen an unmanifest world all jammed to the artwork, this sort of Wagnerian nightmare descending upon the audience yeah. from every conceivable dimension. And words that some people are using for that is more like comprehensive art or total art, which tries to indicate that on the content side, you're trying to express some of these notions in terms of integral or comprehensive or transpersonal or spiritual or whatnot. But a more accurate definition is any artwork produced by integral consciousness mm-hmm. or integral awareness. So this puts the burden, if you will, on the artist's own soul, their right. own interior state, their awareness, their consciousness, how fully developed they are, how plugged into their own deeper, higher, wider potentials they are. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of at least two generally different types of art in a sense. One is art that is expressing integral consciousness, and another is art that is expressing integral consciousness, but it's also trying to convey some of that as a content. Talk about is sometimes the content of your songs have an actual integral content, so yeah. to speak. And sometimes they're just expressions of how you feel at the moment. And sometimes you may be integral or you may not be integral at the moment. Mm-hmm. And exactly. And it can take place encapsulated in one song, as you said. But then also, and increasingly as my career has gone on, I've come to think of the entire repertoire as the integral 
body of work. Right, the full spectrum of Which is exactly. And so, and, and in your performances there, you really do cover a wide spectrum, and we were going to use some songs as some examples. So some of the songs are very, very sublime. I mean, very, very spiritual, very transpersonal, very super conscious, if you will. And then others are, you know, hookers and bombs and masturbating yeah. and getting drunk and throwing up on people. Yeah. The sort of fun, fun, yeah. fun the real joy of life. Exactly. <laughs> so, so what about necrophilia, anesthesia? Yeah. How did that, one of the things I love about that song is the lyrics are really exquisite. And the theme, part of the theme anyway, is emptiness gives rise to the manifest world. Yeah. So you're describing that. Well, it's kind of the... Uh, one of my profound appreciations of pop music, it has this particular potential to be explosive on multiple levels at the same right. time. Like some of the stuff that I'm most into, whether it's Elvis Costello, XTC, The Beatles, whatever it may be, initially, you know, forget about lyrical content or the deeper dimensions that might be waiting there like a well, but the melody or the chord structure itself just provides this catchy, hooky thing. Right. It's like this infectious thing you just get into off the pop. So I'm really into pop songs just for that sugar value, pure and simply. Yeah. And then... One of the linear notes in the first of your CDs I saw said that Stuart Davis finally put God where he belonged in the hook of a three-minute song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the Trojan horse cool trick about pop music. Is like, if you want to... Make kick-ass, catchy pop songs, as we have always done, and people have always loved, right. and then sneak content in there. Right. It's perfectly appropriate for both at the same time. And it's a perfect medium to do that. I mean, yeah. can anybody really remember a Sheryl Crow lyric? But she has how many number one hits? Exactly. But that's great. That's fun. Absolutely yeah. nothing the matter with that. But if you can use that melody, as you say, sort of a Trojan horse, the tune and the catchiness of it, and the sheer energy, as you know, sort now of. Now you could get Leonard Cohen to write that's lyrics <laughs> or Saul Williams. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so 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 you get the gross subtle causal energy going, and then in comes the lyrics. Exactly. So what's the anesthesia part? Anesthesia and necrophilia is kind of like uh, the hook of this song, have a little anesthesia, a little necrophilia, is like the seduction of sleep-inducing agents in the culture in general. Yeah. And the allure of letting yourself be put to sleep and kind of the ongoing game that's been taking place right. in the cosmos since the very beginning was like sleep, wake, sleep, wake. Yeah. And then the necrophilia part is the fascination, the fixation that we have, maybe particularly in the West, but probably not, with uh, inanimate dead things, you know, like the um, wanting to fuck dead objects, you know, like with putting your lust into dead zones and yeah. things like that. So it's like falling asleep and fucking the dead forms, yeah. you know, but it's also all part of this fun circus yeah. that God... A manifestation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> this is it.
like that void You let it leave You're just some pervert Playing hide and seek Wander off from home You hate the man Now you beg yourself To take you about the fact it never spectrum of your own being and see if we can't totally wear you out <laughs> or get some sort of nervous breakdown within, within a very short amount of time. So we were talking about two ways that art can be communicated for an integral artist or an integrally informed artist and they are obviously not hard and fast and there's a whole lots of other ways to look at it but one is the integral artist is hopefully in some sort of integral awareness at that moment or yes. fairly much so and then one way to do it is then try to convey content explicitly that talks about that integral state. And the one song that you just gave is one example of that. It's about actually no boundary awareness. Yeah. Trying to give. That's part of what it came from was the book No Boundary. <laughs> I just remembered now. Yeah, it did. Oh, really. great. Well, yeah. that's, all right. So, that, so you're conveying, you're both in that state when you write it, and you're giving voice to that mm -hmm. no boundary awareness, that love that's all permeating. And you then also convey it in content. Now, sometimes you can simply be in an integrally informed state, but the content itself is not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, and that's an interesting type of art too. That is really interesting, especially it's so cool because expansive, um, you know, dissolving the boundaries and like residing in causal while right. you're singing a red song. Yeah, yeah, is red means very egocentric, very low level song. Yeah. yeah, and just some kind of gritty, dirty, awful yeah. shadow piece, you know. But is this what like bubblegum? The bubblegum. Bubblegum song. But. This song savoring some sorrow is like the sweet celebration of 
the hell realms, you know, yeah. of the delusion. Circus of suffering. Okay. This is uh, Saving Steps Heart, also known as the Bubblegum Song. Bubblegum actually may become the actual title. I love the title. Sort of a, a semi-conscious celebration of yeah. uh, 
Uh, how do you sort of alternate between up-tempo and slower song? It's less to do with my state most of the time than it is the state of the room. It's really funny too what a quote-unquote spiritual audience is like sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes that's actually the worst audience yeah. of all, you know, yeah. is like the supposed, um, you can get a lot more juice sometimes from the drunken cowboys. Exactly. <laughs> and a really powerful, unmistakable, mysterious quality will emerge oftentimes more spontaneously from a quote-unquote non-spiritual Spiritual. audience. As you know, one of the things we work with in sort of an integral model is the notion that whatever number of stages of development people might have, you can be relatively highly developed cognitively or morally or interpersonally and so on. But quite apart from all of that, everybody has access to three or four great states or realms of being, which is in the traditions they call them waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, which everybody has access to. They refer to them as gross, subtle, and causal. Uh, it's an energy that goes with it, an awareness that goes with it. Everybody has access to those three great states, even though they don't necessarily have access to all the specific stages and yeah. sort of detail. So a group of spiritual people could, in a certain sense, have fairly highly developed stage capacity. Mm -hmm. But everybody has access to these great states of gross, subtle, and causal. And so sometimes, like you see, even an average sort of ordinary crowd, because they're not so in a sense, taking things seriously, or they're going to be real spiritual and right. pay attention, they can actually get looser and slip into these subtle and causal states, mm -hmm. maybe more easily than people that make it their practice. Yes, and the mystery of it too, they don't have <coughs> preconceived notions on how to anticipate. But you know, conversely, for instance, a, a while back when we had this integral art gathering, and uh, these artists came from all around the United States and gathered in Boulder, and we had a show on a Sunday night, and yeah. there were 40 to 50 people in the audience that were from that integral gathering, and that was one situation where I definitely felt this just, the room, the awareness in the room was, it was just almost impossible not to drop causal. Yeah. There was so much gravity in that. Yeah, so. it was causal, spiritual, transpersonal, super conscious. And at that point, too, it's like, you know, you step on stage and you just get hit with that resonator. And the audience brings you up. Exactly. That absolutely is one of the greatest, coolest yeah. things that can go down. Now, how about when you yourself write a slow song? That's when you're actually sitting down creatively. Is there, does that come out of a different space? Writing a, a song, and in particular a slow song, it's almost like you get inhabited there can be like an extreme discomfort almost to the ecstasy of it. Yeah. Where it's like physically, you know, I'll get, and you can feel it coming on. And sometimes I'm even like, oh no, not now, you know, yeah. like, fuck. Cause yeah. it's going to be, it could be an hour, but it could be a day or two days. And it's wonderful, days. horrible. It's totally wonderful, horrible. Cause it's ecstatic and it is painful. Ecstatic. It's painful, ecstatic because the intimacy of it and Absolutely. the intimacy of it in the body Absolutely. is just, outrageous I mean sometimes it's like Jesus you know the cellular level of the juice running through but you have to conclude it because it will not exit until I it totally has agree. Been. that's why I really don't like the writing process because I'm, I'm wired into that for hours and hours each morning and it's painfully static but it, it, it's just too much energy for a human body I, mean, yeah. I think creative states sort of exceed the design limits of humans at this point yeah. that's sort of what creativity is it's reaching beyond but if you're blessed or cursed with any kind of creative capacity, then you have to have that electric current running through neurons not designed to contain it. Yeah, and it's almost like your soul has a massive erection and it can't quite ejaculate, you know, until, you know, it's just like this, 
incredible intimacy and building of, and not just through the body, but through the invisible yeah. realms as well. And then once that has concluded or been created and externalized in some fashion, then my experience of it tends to be totally different. Like playing the song exactly. does not necessarily evoke that same. Yeah, and I think what happens when you sort of get stretched like that and create a process is it sort of leaves stretch marks all over your own soul as well. I mean, you and I, anybody that's involved in any creative work knows that you also, in some sense, you grow. You transform a little bit by doing this. It's some, it's your creativity, but it's bigger than you are at the moment. And so your own art is transforming you. Yeah. And then at that, and which is great. And then it's good art. It draws people into that same higher, deeper state when you then communicate it to them and leaves stretch marks on their mind a little yeah. bit or on their soul a little bit. Do mostly do the slower tempo songs come out of higher levels or states for you? In general, yeah. That's an interesting correlation. Swim. Um, I was incapacitated by that song for days, you know, like I would just be sobbing and crying and I couldn't, every time I would start to get into the actual writing part of it, it would just render me undone. And it was, it's just crazy, it's like I couldn't go outside, I couldn't, I just got into that space that then after... Well, why don't you tell where that came from? That came from the book Grace and Grit and it was inspired by, you know, the story of you and Treya and you know, of course, through thousands and thousands of letters the type of experience that people describe in reading that book. I mean, it's almost universal. Every person I've talked to, they get completely undone by it. So that song came from that undone space. And it's really cool to notice that out of all my stuff, that song probably evokes the most you know, resonance. Yeah. And that song will actually bring me. I've seen you do it in audiences, just they're taken into that space. It's really extraordinary. The beds are made of steel 
also evokes a similar state in, in people in the audience. There was nothing in between us when we sleep. Every night the bliss begins to be. Nothing in between us when we Something that our head will never grasp It seems There's nothing in between your joy and mine It's all a lot of nectar Nothing. 
nothing in between a wind and kind Nothing in between our lips and grace Nothing in between a tongue and So wide that there isn't a boundary Only one eye without any enemy Well, you see in So down in the gutter and you can do you're the green room you can do wizard green room is for, when did you when did you do the green room with somebody's holding that was um that had to be based on a semi-real experience yeah it is I mean it's like a, well you know it's the music business and <laughs> things happen that wouldn't be appropriate for family time <laughs> um and it's also, well, it kind of initially stemmed around um, people's perception of just like, oh, there's a musician, that guy, what's he doing, you know? He yeah. sleeps with everyone, he's definitely this and that. And, you know, that's just concisely state that there is a fair amount of distraction in the music industry that <laughs> offers you an opportunity to deal with your... Uh, lower chakras. Lower chakras, exactly. <laughs> um, it's its own kind of alchemy. But it was also, I love the kind of song that's like um, the divine hiding inside of some shadow element. Like the divine taking on shadow. The lowest of the low. The lowest of the low. That's still the fucking gutter, but it's still the divine yeah. and it has a sense of mission in doing it. Yeah. It's not just. And. Uh, <laughs> The theme is uh, the divine hiding 
yeah. and even the deepest, darkest, ugliest shadows. And sometimes in music, you convey the divine in positive terms, and sometimes you go into the shadow and the dark and the ugly because the divine is hiding there. Exactly. And, and one of your favorites that really exemplifies the gutter is uh, the wizard at Green Room. Uh, yeah, the kind of the, the provocateur who uses skillful means to you know, evoke your shit on you, man. <laughs>
song apart it's generated by a series of experiences just general atmosphere of, of being on the road yep so does it get to you every now and then I mean one of the things you're really great at is actually exploring the divine hidden in the shadow but does it get to you I mean you're a meditator and also uh. some of this how do you you know keep your awareness um Pristine. Sometimes in, in, you don't. <laughs> uh, sometimes the pristine awareness gets really muddy <laughs> and bloody and pussy. Yeah. Um, well, through the course of years, there's been a lot of experimentation that I've done with. Because um, one thing I believe very strongly in is that it's not adequate, it's not sufficient to merely describe the shadow realms or the caves yeah. from the outside because for many reasons but one of them most importantly is that that is not powerful and transforming to a listener it's not powerful and transforming it's to not a, believable it's not believable and to a participant you know if I'm at a show or I'm at some artistic event and something is being described to me from someone that I know has never experienced it or has never actually been in there I just dismiss it you know I, I, I can't go into that place with them and so it's super positive and negative states isn't it it's true for it, it, transcendental states as well as and this is where states. new age music becomes completely impotent and why it gets dismissed and ridiculed by a whole swath of Gen Xers or Gen Y or whatever it's going to be uh, because there is a vast realm, you know, half at least, probably more, of reality which it will not broach and yeah. I'm making very general statements but and why rock and roll is so powerful for people on the other end of things, and although it's imbalanced as well is because it goes to those shadow realms and it goes to the earlier chakras or whatever very effectively but as you know, the shadows go all the way up the spiral. So one thing I've been interested in is going up with, hopefully, without getting swept away or lost or completely um, fused with the shadow right. domain, going inside of it and occupying it in first person as an exercise in dissolving whatever lies there within, which right. is a, a meditation practice that's common to many traditions. And, right. So, but it has been tricky because sometimes I definitely have in those experiments in the music and in life and as an artist and just as a person, I've definitely gone too far on a yeah. few occasions and just been like, you know, you don't even know you've gone too far until the shit has kind of crumbled <laughs> and, and there's like a gaping crater where there used to be a lifestyle, you know, and then it's t and then at that point you're like, oh, I need to adjust my calibration of the system here yeah. a bit. But glad we did it. Exactly. Those decimating or off-kilter crazy times or whatever where I lost my judgment, it's incredibly powerful and useful later on. And there's an authenticity in communicating and participating with people in the artistic experience. They just know. It. They're just like, oh, it's real. Yeah, you went. You, you actually were in the demon zone. Yeah. And, okay, so we'll listen to what this is. There, here's another aspect of it. As you know, one of the things that happens in meditation as your awareness deepens is that there is a sort of expansiveness that tends to feel like awareness. In other words, awareness becomes very much like all space, and things are basically just floating in all space, which is floating in your own awareness. And so through that space, like clouds through the sky or thoughts through the mind, there can be both positive and negative objects arising. So as, as your own meditation deepens, it's a little bit different to go into a negative state when you're actually not going to that state, that state's simply passing through you. In other words, you're, you're bringing a certain awareness to mm -hmm. it. Versus simply getting lost in that negative state or being merely that negative state mm -hmm. and losing the awareness or losing the light or losing the radiance or losing the expansiveness 
that allows that negativity to arise. Mm -hmm. So I always found it kind of ironic that, at least looking back at my own life, the times that you're in these really deep negative states were usually ones where your awareness wasn't as trained enough that you could actually benefit out of it in a certain mm -hmm. way. It's like you really just get lost in this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a learning exercise in that sense. And then as your awareness deepens, you can enter those states, but they become less and less interesting. Under those exactly. I find that definitely, um, in the past few years, for instance, I have been less fascinated. I still definitely appreciate and will include the usefulness and the power of going into those. But... It is wild, too, that what you described, that initially, like in a practice, earlier on in the practice, I would have this Jones to be like, oh, I'm going to go into the shadow rooms, I'm going to do some work now, you know, I'm going to go in the cage and sit down and all, uh, you know, melt some shit, etc., like that. But I misjudged the depth of my own awareness significantly and got totally lost and yeah. fucked inside of those things because I thought, oh, I, 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 it's all, you know, I would get in the shadow room. What's that? And you're lost in your own shadow. Exactly. Now, that expanse of awareness would arrive, but it was not stabilized. Right. And so then I would go into a shadow realm, and then the expanse of awareness, or the, uh, that which was not stabilized, I'd get sucked under the undertow, that yeah. other thing. And then later on, when there was, when it was more of a case of things, negative things moving through, then the interest or impulse to clutch or to yeah. finger and toy with something yeah. was less. But there definitely is the continuing tool of being able to take things apart and put them back together in a sense, or to be able to sit without fear, I guess is the most important mm -hmm. aspect of it. It's like dissolving that fear um, because the fearless, if the fearless awareness is there, then anything is open game right. in the performance. Right. Right. And it's also, it's really fascinating to just continue to increase that depth of awareness such that these negatives can arise, stay a bit and pass. And then, in a certain sense, it becomes, uh, it's not so much alluring anymore, as it is almost a kind of, a test or even a testament to the depth of that awareness. Because negativity has a very fascinating, almost beautiful kind of energy to it, when you're not merely identified with it. Yeah. And when you're merely identified with it, it really is demonic and quite ugly, and usually harmful to others. It's usually defined by its egocentric nature. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's this raw, flaming energy that, doesn't give a rat's ass about anybody else. And that's what's so ultimately harmful about it, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, but that same energy entered with a certain kind of awareness and transparency, a certain openness. It's just this kind of beautiful, raw energy. And that's sort of the essence of Tantra, is that you can enter these, these deep shadows and liberate their own hidden wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, in a sense, what a, lot of, you know, what, what a lot of your songs are doing, is basically working with that secret inner thread between angels and demons, mm -hmm. and God and the devil. Yeah. And in the manifest realm, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And that's, we, we've talked about this in the past as well, that that uh, coexistence of good, evil, God, devil, and the implication that they are in fact one reality. They interpret, they all have their different reactions to it, but none of them tend to be positive. Right. There's, there's always some aspect of the catalog that's offensive or repugnant. Right. Well, I think your whole body of work is kind of a, it, it, you can use it as a Geiger count, as a barometer of people's um, 
whether they really are expansive, open, released in certain ways, because if not, they react to certain of your songs. And, and you know, they love some of them, but very upset by the shadow stuff. Mm-hmm. People can sometimes visibly be shaken yeah. by doing it. Or will even walk out. And walk out, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a classic, you know, it's a certain perfect test of uh, meditative equanimity in a certain sense. It's just to be able to endure you. <laughs> Do you ever have a sense that you're kind of testing the audience? Sort of yeah, saying, you know, and that's another place that it's helpful to have a community to stay in check because what can happen... You push too hard? I can find it fun and entertaining to push things for the sake of pushing things yeah. instead of skillfully interacting with a moment. Because I always want to find that precipice and that envelope you know, and then start yeah. pushing for the sake of use for the mystery, but... Then there's other times where you're like, you know what, you're just a fucker, so I know what your button is, and then start <laughs> doing that, you know, and I mean, that's not necessarily a horrible thing all the time either, because it probably is better for them to go away remembering something yeah. than having just a bland, yeah. nothing experience, and might be more useful for them to have feelings of hatred than... <laughs> but I mean, that's not my underlying strategy, you know. <laughs> well, don't worry. Most of the audience hates you. Right? <laughs> I have successfully you know, exactly. stayed away from most of the world, though. Far. Okay. Rock stars need models like babies need bottles. Where did you get that lyric? From real life? Yeah, which totally. we, we think about somebody in specific that you want to... Well, just me. For I mean, Was, it, was this like, when you were dating a model? That was back when I was dating a model, and uh, it seemed... You know, you don't even have to be a rock. Obviously, I'm attesting to the fact that you can be unknown and still, you know, get distracted by the accoutrements of the crazy work. But it is such a archetype, almost in a way, the rock star and yeah. the model. I yeah. mean, they just go together like yeah. one and zero, you know? Yeah. Or zero and zero. That's <laughs> right. So it's kind of, it's a satire, but it's also a celebration because God knows that I just love that shit, you know? It's like the greatest, the surfaces and the sugar of rock and roll are, you can't deny them, man. It's the... Well, so so what did you do? Well, you know, the the grand old platonic vision is that that's just, it might be a low level, but it's a low level of transcendental beauty. So... It's the neon lights of Of spirit. (laughs) Neon of spirit. (laughs) When I burned down this hotel.
to a hit, too. Uh, it actually was on some commercial radio stations. It's definitely a peripheral hit. <laughs> Outer star in the constellation of <laughs> the top 100. <laughs> so, well, they, we did come up with something in, in the top 100, but not without a bullet, but it would be, it would be like with a feather. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe a wooden spoon or something. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, like a, I don't know, maybe a carriage could be the symbol or a that, wagon wheel. A, a, tur- a turtle. <laughs> turtle. It's number 1,000 with a turtle. <laughs> oh, so, where did sugar bullets come from? Sugar bullets, it's kind of like the tantric pop song. The sugar bullet is a not-so-subtle reference to semen, you know, as the fluid of Shakti is the right. explosion of... And so... Well, it's also, it is also a reference to, like, a sweet way to kill someone, you know. Uh, that's your, so that's your idea of sex or just your wife's? Uh, <laughs> no comment? No, <laughs> no comment. It's, um... S- s- but it's actually talking about, the, like in the Buddhist tradition of bodhicitta, that yep. it's, it's sort of the essence in that sense. Yes, and the like a causal eruption, subtle causal eruption brought about through genital congress. Right. You know? and well, why don't you uh, give it a shot? It up, light up that doobie. Light that up.
say the same thing, which is that Stuart Davis is the most important singer-songwriter you've never heard. Is that frustrating sometimes? Because, I, I mean, everybody I know who, and very discriminating people, who go to one of your performances, uh, listen to your songs, read the lyrics, which are just brilliant, um, you're sort of everybody's favorite. I mean, it has to be frustrating to some extent. Sometimes a little bit, but not, not very often, actually, and not very deeply. You know, because... The drugs help, right? The drugs pretty yeah. much medicate the whole yeah, that's good. I'm incapable of even seeing the room I'm in, much less... <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing hurts me, man. Nothing. <laughs> it's, uh... But, well, let's put it this way. Has it gotten easier? Because it must... It's, it, it's it, gotten... Uh, I will say that it has gotten much easier. In fact, it's almost non-existent. Like, in the last four or five years... You know, I've been doing this full-time for about 12 years. I'm right. 32 years old. So I started when I was like 19 or yeah. 20. And that's all I've done. And in the first five years, um, ironically, when I, in retrospect, feel that my music was not that useful um, or was less useful, um, that was when I really wanted to be famous. And I yeah. really wanted commercial yeah. success and all of that. And... I mean, I like that music okay and everything, but I was bothered by it back then, and I definitely had much more of a indignation or resentment. But curiously, and I feel notably, as meditation practice sunk in and became the centerpiece in my life's work, that changed radically. Yeah. And then there was a phase where I was like, there still was an irritation, but it was not... A significant one. It was just kind of like a little thing that floated around in the background, mm -hmm. and in the last few years, it just kind of feels like it's dissolved. Because I really feel that, you know, you, would I turn away from a larger numerical success? Of course not. I mean, I've always remained open to that, and I'm interested in it, and um, would welcome it if it were under the right conditions. And the right conditions are that I can never compromise the vow. You know, the Bodhisattva vow has to be at, has to be the organizing 
the prime directive of everything. And I would not have been, like if something bigger had happened for me earlier in my career, I would not have been able to stay on track. I would have gotten turned into an idiot, you know? Well, you're also not just exploring your shadow, but getting lost in it regularly. Yeah, and that's not the, in retrospect, in fact, I can remember us sitting at the house years ago and we were having some conversation and I was just like, you know what, I just pray that some kind of success doesn't come that outpaces my capacity right. to see through it, you know? Right. And apparently I don't have much capacity to see through things because... Nothing really to worry about. <laughs> so, and I, and the truth is that I have actually had an amazing career for an independent artist. Like, I've sold over 40,000 CDs without a major label, yeah. without um, any kind of national distribution, you know, just grassroots stuff right. on the website and shows and... And I have ne I've not had a struggle to make a living, and things are really solid. I have great, you know, I have this relationship. I've got great um, support and connection with all kinds of just amazing human beings. That you know, the type, my, the career type that I have now is this this rich myriad of multi-dimensional, interdisciplinary, yeah. interspiral stuff that I never could have imagined. Or, didn't even know to wish for yeah. and at this point I'm just so grateful and so excited and the way that my fans have you know I may only have a you know a few 10,000 or 20,000 fans or whatever I don't know but the way that they step forward is yeah. unbelievable well but see that's what's that, since that seems to be the reaction of most people when they listen to your music um but people really relate to your music in a very, very strong way. So part of the difficulty, and we've had this conversation a thousand times, part of the difficulty, of course, is that the people that get their records played, it's not just a matter of who has talent and who doesn't. It's who has a lawyer, who has payola, and it costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars to even get in circulation. Yeah. It's just sort of the way it is. And it's not even necessarily a bad thing. I mean, things tend to arise the way they arise, mm -hmm. and sort of everybody doing the best they can under yeah. weird circumstances. But it's certainly not conducive to simply... Um, the best talent is going to surface in the right. system. That's just not really what the system is designed for. It's a business system. And so one of the things that, that hopefully is going to happen through the web, for example, is that people can get access to talent before record companies screen them out mm -hmm. of existence. And Lincoln Park is my favorite recent example. If they yeah. got turned down 40 record companies. They had 40 oh, auditions turned down by so every wild. one of them. And these guys are brilliant. I mean, they God bless so them for having the resolve and the resilience. And they just went on the web and started putting the stuff out and putting it out, and they got a huge response. And, of course, their first CD went double or triple platinum. The second one is out. And, I mean, just hats off to them. You know that my favorite group, The Faint, yeah. out of Omaha, sort of flew under the radar screen. And their third CD went, went, went platinum. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, you know, hopefully those kinds of stories are going to continue to happen. Um, I continue to remain open to, you know, I don't have the stick-to-itness or verve that Linkin Park does to go through 40 episodes of rejections, to, especially with the kind of rejection that you get are so hilarious and it's surreal. True. But, well, we have the same kind of verve, it's just, it's just you don't want the commercial hit, so you wouldn't go through that, but you've gone through equivalent trials oh, for your own music. And, and so. you, you got to have that kind of moxie just to keep yourself applied in yeah. this kind of work anyway, you know, yeah. and mystery work in general, but... What I'm doing, I feel, is totally compatible with the commercial mainstream. In fact, I feel that one definite point that is that they're way out of touch, whether my music ever fit in there or whatever or not, they're really out of touch with 
what they perceive to be the proportion of the public that is interested in music with content or music with right. second tier or... Well, think of what they did. Think of what the sort of industry in this case did. And again, you know, it is what it is and that's fine. But think of our mutual friend Eddie Kowalczyk and Dan Lott. Even if you read the reviews, the most damning thing the critics would say is they have no irony. In other words, they're sincere and serious about mm-hmm. their content. They actually believe yep. they have a very deep spiritual orientation. Mm-hmm. And that's kiss of death in that world. Because you're not allowed to really believe anything seriously because then you're taking be foisting a view on somebody else or trying to cram yeah. your religion down their throat or something like that. And so unless you have this kind of ironic step-back stance or unless you're sort of screaming and yelling or unless you're singing about sex or unless you're singing about uh, you know beach and sun and fun, mm-hmm. no room for it. And it's and a great it's example really too. It's funny too because the critics, I don't... You know, if you look at lives... Record sales, for instance, obviously that those critical comments from a few people do not reflect the ache and hunger in the public for music like that, yeah. that has depth, dimension, and sincerity, and says something that besides you know, regurgitating dogma right. and doctrine of some kind. Uh, throwing Hopper sold 5 million CDs. Yeah. So they, I think that there's a huge interest in music that's more interesting and has more to it you know second tier pop music is really what we're talking about so there's more to the game than I think that they they're half on about there's such a narrow radio world now that they're afraid to take anything that remotely resembles a risk because they've got a hundred billion dollars on the line for everything they do now so it's like the life or death of the company hinges on everything they possibly put out but I do think that there is more room for something interesting to take place. Here's do a song. There's one. There are many of them, but one of one of my favorite ones is just a flat out content. It's we call it Seven Chakras song. So we'll the back pause while that. That's a very. Maybe that's my cue to pee. That, that's a What is that? Oh god, that fucking rocks, dude. Where'd you get that? I got it in the catalog. That is so kick ass, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're still. Cool. Um, so we just do it. So, uh, one of my favorite songs that is just flat out content is the Seven Chakra song because, first of all, it's a great melody, it's a great rock song, but it's also just, it just tells the whole story. Of, you know the seven chakras, and it's it's just some of the lyrics are really exquisite. So, uh, it you know, Dirk, my guitarist, yeah. is on this record, he calls this one the knee bones connected to the leg bone. <laughs> it is a subtle anatomy song. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, why don't you go ahead and no, I like this one? Do it with <clears throat> seven wonders of the soul. Spin seven orbs in a suit of skin, seven candles up and down the spine, running from the anus to the super mind. It's a miracle we don't combust with all the light put inside of us, even before there's a baby born. It's ready. 
Billboard charts with a sugar bullet. Woo! 